What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it made some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Roberts, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Cindy Lauper's debut album, She's So Unusual, was full of ska. The final version of the album only hints at it, but many of the early versions of the songs were rooted in ska and reggae, with Philadelphia's ska band The Hooters backing her. This story is missing from the pop culture canon. Fortunately, musician and writer Mark Wasserman, our guest today, wrote the book Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History, to fill us in on all this lost Ska history that happened during the 80s. And there was a lot of Ska in the U.S. during this time, even if mainstream culture insists otherwise. Mark is also known for his bands Bigger Thomas, Rude Boy George, and Heaven's Bee. So for both of us, we got interested in Ska in the 90s, but the story starts before that. Yeah, and... It's a story that I didn't know too much about in the 90s, but came to learn about more as I got into ska more. And then when I was working on my book, I really learned a lot about ska in the 80s. The person who is a scholar of that era is Mark Wasserman. When I first discovered him, he was a blogger. He had a blog called Marco on the Bass. He was covering these obscure bands that nobody else was talking about. What sort of bands? Well, I mean, you know, the Untouchables and Bim Scalabim, these are bands that were from that era that were a little bit more common. But he was also digging up bands like the uh, Extremes, who are like an interesting, obscure band from like Phoenix, Arizona. He was the first person I really see talk about like 70s American reggae bands like Blue Rhythm Band and The Shakers. And I ended up interviewing both of those bands for my book, but it was I learned about them from Mark. I think the most interesting thing about hearing these stories is while these 
earlier bands are not the ones that I listen to. They're the bands that the bands I grew up listening to did listen to. Yeah. So there's a really cool through line there. In my book, In Defense of Scott, I felt like a theme that emerged that I didn't necessarily intend, but sort of, you know, looking back after I finished it was that the story of American Ska was a lot of misfits. And, you know, whether it's the bands or the fans, just its place in culture. It's interesting. When I started reading your book, I read your intro and your intro says right up front, like really, it's just you were a misfit. You had all these problems. You didn't fit in and you found Ska. I would love to hear more about that. Sure. Um, I was diagnosed uh, the summer before ninth grade with ulcerative colitis, which is not something I would wish on anybody. Um, my best friend growing up in middle school was from the Philippines, and his family invited me to travel to the Philippines with them that summer, uh, which was quite an adventure. And I went on my own uh, with his family. Uh, and so we went to Manila, which was a trip. Uh, and then his family was originally from a city called Zamboanga, which is in the southernmost part of the Philippines. Philippines is an archipelago, like, you know, a thousand islands. So this is the biggest island, Mindanao, which was the site of many, very many uh, battles during World War II between uh, the U.S. and Japan. Um, so when I came back from the Philippines, I got very sick. Uh, so I missed the first six weeks of my freshman year of high school. Uh, and when I got, finally got there, it was weird because, uh, you know, high school is overwhelming when you're there from the beginning, but to come in late was, was, was rough. And also I was on um, uh, heavy duty uh, steroids for this illness that I had picked up while I was in the Philippines. So I looked funky. Like, you know, if you take steroids for long periods of time, it, you sort of get bloated. And uh, I stopped growing because uh, I was on these steroids for about a year. So, so ninth grade uh, was kind of fucked up. And um, my parents' marriage was also in the process of starting to unravel. Um, so I definitely did not fit in. Uh, so, I, you know, I'd been sick and um, people sort of looked at me a little strangely because I looked a little off uh, from being sick. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a weird year. I mean, I had friends. But but I didn't really, you know, I wasn't sort of in the mainstream of of uh, my high school. I always loved music, though, from the time I was a little kid. Um, and my friend from the Philippines, you know, my Filipino friend was also into music. And um, while I was in the hospital, I was in the hospital for uh, a month. Um, he came to visit me in the hospital and he brought me the special's first album. And... Uh, he said, this album is crazy, crazy. So when you get home, you should listen to it. And that's what I did. I remember the first day I got home from the hospital, I put on that record and um, had sort of a uh, lightning bolt moment would be what I would call it. Um, and the way I described it was I was sort of like terrified by what I heard. I had never heard anything like this before. Couldn't really understand what they were singing about, but the music, there was something about the music that just connected with me. And that was just sort of opened a door for me. Um, and 
that was my, you know, that was the beginning of my ska journey. So I was 14 years old. That was 1979. So, um, you know, I was luckily concurrent with everything that was going on in England at that time with two-tone. And so I was able to go to the record store and say, Hey, uh, do you have anything else that sounds like the specials? And, um, this guy just said, yeah, go get the English beat album over there. And then it was just sort of like detective work. I spent a lot of time after school haunting record stores where I grew up in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, lucky for me, there was one of the best record stores in the country is in Princeton um, called the Record Exchange. And uh, even though the record clerks there could be jerks, if you um, ask the right questions, they would guide you. And so I have those sort of snooty, stuck up, <laughs> record store clerks to thank for sort of uh, directing me, but the rest was up to me. But those guys were you were helpful. If I said I liked ska or reggae, they would say, "Look over here or look over there." So that's sort of how it started for me. Did you go backwards immediately, or did it take a while before you went back into Jamaican ska and stuff? It took a little while uh, because I was also uh, growing up uh, at the same time that new wave was exploding. You know, an MP. Some of my friends had cable before I did, so I would go over to their houses to watch MTV and really got into New Wave as well. So, you know, uh, what was interesting back then was that bands like The Specials and The English Beat and The Selector were sort of covered by the umbrella of New Wave. So, um, you know, that's how it was grouped. Um, it was only a bit later when I got to college that uh, I started that process of uh, really looking at liner notes more carefully and then connecting the dots that, wow, a lot of the songs on the specials and selectors' first albums are not written by them. And then sort of figuring out that those were covers. That was, you know, no one told me that. <laughs> that was a realization I had to make myself and then started going back. And I think someone probably gave me like, there was a uh, Whaler's Ska album. I remember somebody turned me on to that and that just blew my mind because I only knew Bob Marley from, you know, his Bob Marley and the Whalers albums from the, you know, mid seventies and early eighties. So hearing him singing Ska music was like, wow. And and that, that was another door opener for me, you know, the Scottalites from that Prince Buster. So a lot of that took place early in college. When you had that lightning bolt moment, was that it, just in regards to listening to the music or at that point were you thinking about playing music oh just listening to it i was really into music but at, at that point in my life had no conception of how to make music uh didn't even occur to me like i would see people going into the band room in middle school and then later in high school and be and thinking like what what goes on in there how do you even do that it, it wasn't even something i could wrap my head around no not at all so did you have an additional lightning bolt moment of playing music or was it a slower progression with that? I did have another lightning bolt moment <laughs> about playing music. I discovered uh, in the back of the Village Voice uh, in high school that, you know, there were all these clubs uh, about an hour from where I lived in New York and there was music everywhere. You know, at the time I was still too young to go to those shows, um, but uh when I was 17, I got to go see the police with the Go-Go's. The Go-Go's opened for the police at Madison Square Garden. I went with a bunch of my friends. That was my first real concert experience. 
but when I got to, to college, I uh, started to go into New York quite a bit to see shows. I mostly new wave stuff. Um, the Fix, Elvis Costello, things like that. Um, but I finally discovered uh, from hanging out at the, I went to Rutgers University, so New Jersey boy through and through. Um, I used to hang out at the uh, Rutgers radio station, WRSU. And um, I happened to see this album, New York Beat Hit and Run. And I was like, what is this? Uh, it was all these New York bands on, on a compilation. Uh, I was familiar with the Toasters, but I, wasn't, I hadn't heard of anybody else. So I uh, happened to notice maybe a day or two later, there was a ska show, a ska matinee going on at CBGB's, which I had never been to in my life. Um, so I took the train in with a friend of mine and we made our way down to the East Village um, and went into CBGB's, which was just a crazy trip in and of itself. And uh, it happened to be a show that was um, called Boston versus New York. And it was the Toasters and Bim Scala Bim on the same bill. And the Boilers were the opening band. So the uh, place was packed. Um, and uh, I just sort of stood there mesmerized because my whole uh, point of reference up to that point was British Two-Tone. And here were three American bands um, playing ska and reggae. But, you know, it was New York and Boston accents. Um, and I remember standing there and the dance floor was heaving. I mean, just apeshit crazy. I don't think I've experienced anything like that ever since. Um, and it was like the sky parted and this light came down. And uh, I heard a voice in my head say, you can do this too. And, and at that point, I said, I have to learn how to play an instrument. Um, and mind you, I had no musical experience of any kind, none, zero. Um, we had a piano in my house growing up, but my sister played it. I never sat at the piano. Um, so shortly after that, I, I started to talk to people who I knew who were into music. And I was like, what's the easiest instrument to learn how to play? And one of my friends said, oh, the bass, you know, Paul Simonon of the Clash did not know how to play the bass when he joined the Clash, you know. You don't have to know how to play the bass. So I took his advice and I uh, talked my mom into buying me a bass guitar from the Sears catalog. Um, and it arrived uh, during, I think, like it might have been Christmas break between my freshman and sophomore year of college. And uh, it came in, a, I remember it, it, it came in like this cardboard case, like a, a real guitar case, but like a real cheap case and um, cherry red, and it felt like it weighed 150 pounds when I put it on, like it was made out of concrete. And um, I didn't know what to do with it, literally. I felt like it was an alien life form. I picked it up, I didn't know how to play it. Um, it intimidated me, uh, the strings hurt my fingers. Um, and so that was my introduction. <laughs> To, to the bass, but basically I started to stick with it. I took a lesson and um, uh, I then just started to listen to records and very poorly <laughs> tried to pick out the notes. Uh, you know, if they were major notes like C, D, or G, 
I was good. Other than that, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, so that was my introduction. So the, the bass collected a little dust for a little while while I sort of stared at it uh, and tried to like make friends with it. It wasn't really very friendly to me in the beginning, though. That's a great story. That sounds so similar to my own experience learning guitar. I can remember the first time just sitting there with the guitar on my lap. I was holding it upside down because Kurt Cobain <laughs> played guitar left-handed. <laughs> and so I just had it in my lap and I had no idea what to do with it for the first you know, whole day I had this thing until I took a, a single lesson. Didn't even know how to hold it. Yeah, I, I just stared at it for a while. I was so obsessed with music and bands that had at that point kind of saved my life that seeing uh, a bass guitar up close and personal was like, it was intense. Like yeah. there, there was a, maybe you can relate to this, uh, just like a, an energy coming off it. I just wanted to play it, but I did not know how, I did not know what to do with it at all. It was so intimidating to me. Related to that. So where is your gear right now? My gear is right next to me. Okay. So it's in your home, right? It's right next to my desk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So same with me. My, my guitar amp is right here. My guitars are behind me. Does it feel to you, this could be, I could be totally off base here. I feel like I have a dangerous thing in my home (laughs) with these, with this like amplifier and this like stack of guitars behind me. Do you ever get a similar feeling, especially having dragged these things in and out of so many clubs I still have sort of a weird relationship with my guitars, I okay. feel. Uh, it's like that girl that you sort of had a thing with, and then it didn't work out, but you're still sort of friends, you know, like you see each other around. Like, do I play my guitar every day? I do not. Um, I should. But uh, I think I've played it enough over the last 30 years that I have a better sense of what I can do with it. And it's, it's um, a means to an end for me. It was really just about being able to play music. I didn't want to, I wasn't obsessed with being the best bass player. I just wanted to be able to participate, like stick me in right field for music, right? Like if it was a little league thing, you know, we'll put him in right field because the ball won't get hit to him. Um, that that was how I felt about my bass playing for a long time. Um, as I've gotten older, I've gotten much better at the guitar. I know where the notes are. Um, uh, starting a uh, this band, Rude Boy George, where we do cover versions of, uh, we do reggae and ska versions of New Wave was uh, a great experience for me because it forced me to have to learn songs. Um, all previous to that, I played bass lines because I didn't know how to play other people's songs. So I only wrote original music because I, I didn't really know how to do anything other than that. And so that was a real educational experience for me where I had to relate to the instrument differently than I had before, where I actually had to study and listen and pay attention and, and figure out how did the bass line actually go? We needed to play it exactly like the original. So that, that happened about, five or six years ago where my relationship with, with the instrument changed for the better. It's so interesting to me, like music and playing drums and being in my band was meant everything to me at the time. And it's one of the, you know, one of a lot of my happiest memories, but I really don't miss playing the drums. Like <laughs> I'm fine not playing drums. You know, people ask me like, like, Oh, 
you want to play drums? Even my wife sometimes is like, you should, what if you had a band and play drums? I'm like, I don't really want to play drums. I can relate to that completely, Aaron. Uh, I did not pick my guitar up very much uh, during the pandemic. Um, I made a lot of music. I made a ton of music, uh, but it was mostly um, online with samples or with other people. So my creative energy was high, but it didn't involve me playing my bass, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to music constantly and I really like writing about music and going to shows. So I don't know, I just don't need, I just don't really need to play it, I guess, is a weird, it's a weird thing because that playing it was 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 the top of the list back in the day. Yeah, same same for me. It, 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 somebody could do a whole thing around how people relate to their instruments because it's I I totally relate to you on that. It's I've been hot and cold with my bass, definitely, like a relationship, like an you know a a, a relationship with someone you know where you're you're on and you're off. The really upsetting thing though is that Aaron is so good at drums, <laughs> he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> So Aaron's ska band in high school was what got me into ska. Right. And so for him, like, just have watched him play drums and for him to not play drums now, it's just like, what are you doing? I, I, <laughs> I get it. He has, he, I mean, breaking down and setting up drums is like the worst thing ever. Well, I, I totally know that because as a bass player, I used to have to, I was expected to help the drummer in my band. Like, he was like, so what time are you going to be there to help me bring all my shit in? I'm like... <laughs> Uh, what time should I be there? <laughs> but I just, you know, it's part, I'll say this. I always feel like I'm part of a unit. So it's me and the drummer. I, that's the one thing. I, I'm a team player kind of guy. So I've always loved that it's a rhythm section. Yeah. Right. So that's one part that's always been appealing to me about being a bass player. Well, Adam and I have a, a band called Narboots where we both sing and the, the most of the music is on an iPod or sometimes other people play with us. And I don't think like I'm a great singer, but I like that. That's fun. Cause it's like performance art and like right. that I do like miss. I'm like during the pandemic, I'm like, man, it's so much fun to play Narboot show, but I still don't like, didn't find myself going like, man, I want to play drums at a show. Like I'm still, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I like performing, I guess. It's just, I don't know. Well, I'd say you're performing in a different way now. Like, you know, uh, writing a book is a, is a type of art it's, it's, and, and you're writing about music. So to me, that's a whole, I mean, you, maybe you're not playing the drums now because you're, you're doing this, you know, your, your, your energies are focused on this. Yeah. It's, it takes a lot of energy. I mean, obviously this is something, you know, you've been writing your blog for a long time, but now that you went into the foray of writing a book. I'm sure you would say it's drastically different. Oh yeah. A hundred percent like black and white. Um, the, the great thing about a blog post was uh, it could be knocked out quickly. Uh, I, I could be, I could sit down and say, what do I want to write about? And an hour later I could have a post. Um, book writing was <laughs> nothing like that. <laughs> um you know, it was much more, uh, I had to think it through more. Uh, I had to be much more organized. Um, you know, I like the creativity of a blog post that it's in the moment. It's capturing lightning in a bottle sort of thing. Um, the book was grinding it out. I don't know if it was like that for you, Aaron, but it, you know, I had, had to create a roadmap and follow the roadmap and grind it out. Uh, 
So there were times when it was very much like work and not as much fun as writing a blog. Oh, it was not fun at all for me. <laughs> I would not say fun when I say when I would describe writing my book, especially in 2019, when I did a, the bulk of the actual putting it all together and the writing and stuff. That to me felt like never ending stress and occasionally completely breaking down and having like <laughs> and crying and being like, this is never going to end. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can relate to that. I mean, I had this little list, you know, I, I picked, I had 19 chapters in my book and I had, I had written them down. And every time I finished researching and then writing a chapter, I would cross it off, you know, and it, it looked like in the beginning that I was like, how am I going to ever finish this? You know, e each chapter was like a separate book. And that was, um, I think that's, that was the challenge I gave myself. I now look, I don't even know how I did it, to be honest with you. It feels like it was a fever dream at times. I don't know if you had that experience, but I for, forget, I guess it's like how, when women talk about giving birth, like they say, they forget how painful it is, you know, cause then you have this amazing, beautiful child. But, um, yeah, there's parts of the whole experience that I don't remember. Um, because I think I was just so focused at the time. And also just like you said, it was painful. There were just times when I was sitting here thinking like, how am I going to put this chapter together? Like I didn't get this person and this person's can't talk to me for another two weeks. It was a lot of logistics, as much logistics as, um, writing it. And, you know, uh, I think your, your writing that your book has a different um, approach and style. I had to like, um, had all these interviews and um, how to weave them together. That was also the hard part of like, where do I start? Uh, you know, I finally had to figure out like, it's the origin story, you know, like comic books. I had to say, it starts at the beginning. That was the hardest part for me initially was how do I start this? Does each chapter have to be different? And then what I realized was they can follow a similar path because each band's origin story is completely different from other, every other band's. So that once I figured that out, things started to fall into place. And I know you and I have talked about this, Aaron. I know you've told me how it took you a while to figure out what your book was going to be about. Like, you know, it took you a while to get yeah. to the In Defense of Ska concept. It took me a while to figure out how to organize my book as well. That was the most stressful time for me. Right away, did you know it was going to be oral history style or was that part of the process of coming to that decision that it was going to be not written, not Mark writing it with quotes, but oral history with, with only the band's words? Yeah. Uh, from the beginning, I decided it was going to be an oral history. And that was also somewhat influenced by my publisher, um, DeWolf Publishing, whose first book about city gardens uh, this mm -hmm. punk rock club in Trenton that I spent a lot of time at uh, was an oral history. And um, I have a personal affinity for oral histories. I have quite a few of them on my bookshelf, music oral histories. Um, there was one that came out a couple years ago about New Wave um, that I just loved. And that was really inspiring to me. And then there was a book called Walls Come Tumbling Down by Daniel Rachel, which is this massive book basically about... Um, the 80s British scene, but there's a whole 
focus on two tone, and then there's a whole chapters on red wedge about you know Paul Weller and the red wedge movement, the labor the supporting the Labor Party in England. And there's a a great uh, book called uh, Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is an oral history sort of about uh, alternative bands from the late '80s and early '90s. So those were all super influential for me, and um, I also uh, thought it was important that I not filter the stories um, because I wanted, I knew some of the people who were in my book and I'd spoken to them before and they had told me their stories, which I found really fascinating. And so it just made sense to me because we're talking about a time that was not well-documented, is not well-documented, that it was, it made more sense for the people who were there to tell me their stories. And then I would just sort of weave them together into a narrative that would hopefully be as truthful as possible. Our band could be your life was an influence on me in terms of wanting to write about ska because I read that book and I loved it. And it dawned on me that this book that was cataloging the American, you know, uh, 80s DIY scene had no mention of ska whatsoever. And even though back then I didn't know as much as I know about this period, I I, it, I just knew that it was omitted. It just kind of bothered me that an entire genre got omitted. And I knew that those bands played with ska bands. And I that only got more affirmed the more I researched and talked to these bands. You know, I talked to the Gangster Fun and they're like, yeah, we used to play with Fugazi, you know, like Untouchables and, and Uptones would talk about playing with Red Hot Chili Peppers and and in your intro, I remember you mentioned some of the bands you played with, like De La Soul, you know, some of the kind of like to people reading that who are younger, they might be like, wow, that's so weird. But it's not weird because there wasn't the scene was smaller. So all the bands played together. Totally. So for me, I mean, this, you must have felt this even stronger than me. I felt like, why was the 80s? Why is Scott omitted from the 80s when it was a significant part of the underground scene in this country? Is that something you think about? I mean, that must have driven you to write this book, too. It's a really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. You know, um, Steve Schaefer and I uh, talked a lot. I mean, we we were in a band together for a while. He was in one of the original members of Rude Boy George. So we had a lot of time when we were, you know, rehearsing or, or on the road playing shows to talk about this. And um, it, it, he wrote a great introduction to my book which I think is important. Uh, and the reason I asked him to do that was to sort of get to the question you just asked, which is to sort of ground people before they read the rest of the book in like what was going on in, in the 80s at that point. And I think he does a really great job of explaining that. Um, you know, I think the short answer is uh, institutional racism. Uh, I mean, you know, Fishbone put an album out in 1985 that's to me... Uh, uh, a classic. And, um, that, Absolutely. that, that, yeah. and, and, and Steve and I sort of talked this through there, you know, we also felt the untouchables wild child album and the toasters, um, first EP, their self-titled EP, all three of those albums came out in 1985. Um, two of them on major labels. Um, and then the, the toasters one was, you know, they were the first, uh, band on it with, on an independent label that got national distribution, which is pretty significant. But it's a great question. I don't know why. Those three albums changed my life, and I think they changed the lives of many other people who heard them. 
Uh, and I think what's also fascinating is we kind of make the case, Steve and I we talked about this, and I think he makes a good case for each of them sort of being the, the root for different uh, branches of ska music that develop from them. But, but it's a long-winded answer to your question, which is why didn't they get more attention? I don't know. I think there was just so much going on as the 80s closed, you know, hip hop started to make inroads and become super popular. Uh, reggae had sort of morphed into dancehall reggae. And so, um, you know, Yellow Man was huge in the late 80s and then into the early 90s. And so uh, I think those things had a lot to do with it. And also um, the two-tone bands that inspired me and all of the kids in the 80s to start these bands had all broken up. Um, and so they weren't around anymore. And I think it was sort of like a little blip kind of until what your book take, you know, uh, focuses on, which is when it sort of came back, um, because of the bands in that I feature in my book sort of just kept going. They just went on the road and they, they just, you know, uh, were road warriors and played and toured wherever they could and, um, uh, influenced tons of kids who were, you know, five or 10 years younger than us who then started all these bands that that finally took off in the mid-90s. Yeah, I mean, it's like multiple steps. I mean, you have the the Untouchables and Toasters, the early bands. Then you have the bands that are like, you know, Skank and Pickle and Voodoo Gold Skulls. And those bands, they start in like the late 80s. So they're not like 90s bands, but they're influenced by the earlier bands. And then those bands influence the, the bands that start in the early 90s. Like, you know, Real Big Fish starts in like 91 or 92. It's like multiple steps to get to the mid late nineties, like mainstream moment of ska of like kind of like several generations in a way of bands, like kind of all forming in different years. That's right. And, and like someone like Mike Park, who is probably closer to my age, um, you know, told me when I spoke to him that uh, his gateway was seeing dance craze at a, a, a midnight showing, I think with um, Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads movie. And uh, he went out the next day and bought a Bad Manners album, which uh, now that I know that makes a lot of, explains a lot to me about sort of the origins of Skank and Pickle. You know, that, that, that Bad Manners were sort of, um, uh, you know, there was a, a comedy element to Bad Manners. There was a, a fun quality to them that was sort of, like, you know, the specials and the selector could be pretty heavy, you know, and no nonsense. And there you've got, you know, fatty buster blood vessel, you know, throwing water at the crowd and doing, you know, sticking his tongue out um, and, and bringing sort of an element of, of uh, levity to it. And I could see, you know, that makes sense to me that they were huge on the West Coast. Uh, Bad Manners are one of the two-tone era bands who never stopped touring. And so lots and lots of kids saw them. And uh, they're a great, they're like one of the funnest bands I've ever seen in my life. So, um, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as well. Before this book, you started Marco on the Bass, which was, when, when did you start the blog? 2008. You started documenting these bands in 2008. There was no documentation, really, of most of these bands in 2008. And with the fact that it was totally undocumented, I mean, that must have been why you said, I'm going to do this, right? Definitely. Um, because I grew up in the New York City ska scene, um, I, I, I think I got the actual um, 
date of the anniversary wrong, but I wanted to celebrate the 25th anniversary of New York Beat Hit and Run. That was the original intent of my of uh, one of the things I wanted to do on my blog. That's how I met Steve Schaefer um, and how I met a guy who owned a bar in New York that had been in one of the bands that was on that compilation. And so we all came together and planned this reunion. And I used the blog at that point to sort of get the word out about this reunion. And I had no idea what to expect the night of the reunion, um, but like 150 people showed up um, from all these different bands or people who were fans of the bands or were like into the New York City ska scene of the 80s. And it was from hanging out that night with a lot of these people uh, that I realized that um, there were lots of great stories to tell, but no one had ever told them. They were just shared among these same group of people who would occasionally get together. Uh, so um, that's where I, I sort of had a light bulb <clears throat> moment where I, I realized like no one else is going to do this. It was sort of like if no one else is going to do it, why not me? So that was sort of the beginning of saying, and I met a, a lot of people that night when I said, hey, could I, could I interview you? Could I talk to you about the Boilers? Could I talk to you about the A-Kings? You know, could I talk to you about Second Step? Could I talk to you about the Beat Brigade? All the band, I basically just used the back of that album as the guide for the people I wanted to talk to. And that's sort of what I did uh, piece by piece. So sorry, it took me forever to answer your question. But yes, <laughs> I think it's, I think it would be fair to say that that was sort of the blueprint. That exercise became the blueprint for what later became this book. Had you wanted to write a book for that whole time or was it sort of a that he hadn't really considered it until the opportunity came there used to be this thing right after blogging became really big where people would say oh well you just turn your blog into a book right and so <laughs> i remember hearing that and i remember my wife saying to me you ever gonna you ever thought about turning your blog into a book and i was like no um not at all it's not really organized like it, it could be a book it's not like i could take what's there and and turn it into a book. So no, I was dedicated to blogging. I didn't give a book any thought at all. Um, that changed on uh, New Year's Day of 2018. Um, the DeWolf folks uh, put a post up on Facebook and they basically, it was just short and to the point. It said, uh, we're looking for first time writers for musical subculture books, punk, hardcore, hip hop. So I shot, I was, I said to my wife, you know, what, what should my new year's resolution be that I'm going to write a book? Should I respond to this post that they just put up on Facebook? And she said to me, you should definitely respond to them. So I wrote them a note and literally like 15 minutes later, uh, Steve DeLodovico, who's, who's my editor, wrote back and said, uh, basically said, Hey, would you be interested in a book about American Scott? And he wrote back and said, yes. When can you talk? And I said, can you talk today? He's like, yeah. Half an hour later, we were on the phone. And he said, I love the idea of this book about American ska. I'm a hardcore punk guy. I don't know a single thing about ska other than who the toasters are. But um, we'll put this book out if you want to write it. And I said, okay. <laughs> not, not knowing what I was really getting myself into. And that was sort of the, the beginning. Did you have any uh, ideas of how to approach this that you didn't go with before you landed on the, the version that we're reading now? I started interviewing everyone and anyone 
And I did that for about two months. And I remember thinking as I was doing these interviews, should I be interviewing this person? Like, how do they fit into this? Because at that point, I didn't have a roadmap. And uh, I give my wife credit for helping me sort of figure this out because uh, I was sitting here one day after I just interviewed someone and she said, are you writing a book or you're writing the encyclopedia of ska? And I said, oh, I'm writing a book. And she said, well, keep it simple. Figure out a way to keep it simple. And that's when I said, oh, it should be about the bands that I really love, that, that had an impact on me and uh, influenced me to love ska, but also to be a musician. So that, that was sort of the, um, the lightning bulb, light bulb, whatever moment where uh, everything sort of finally came into focus. But that took a couple of months. I mean, that's faster than it took me to uh, go from just randomly interviewing people to having a roadmap. But Yeah, it might have been a little easier for me just because I was from the era where this, like, this felt like uncharted territory for me. Like, I just felt like... Uh, most of you, most people don't even know who the Boilers are or Beat Brigade or Second Step. I saw them all. I know those guys. So there was something personal about it. Um, I wanted to pay my respects to them. So that was a driving motivation for me as well. And then it was bigger bands uh, like the Untouchables, uh, Bim Scala Bim, the Toasters, Mephiscopheles, bands like that, that had, who in my mind had, had gone levels above anything that I ever experienced playing ska music. You know, we're touring and putting multiple albums out who I also felt in some ways just weren't getting the credit that they deserved for all the hard work that they were putting in. So when I looked at it that way, and and no offense to to California, I know you guys are Californians, but I, I, I do feel <laughs> like when it comes to telling the story of ska, it's very tilted to California very, very tilted to California. So I wanted to try and balance it out a little bit by, by giving some love to New York. Cause there were a lot of bands in the eighties from New York, you know? Um, so that was also something that was inspiring to me. I mean, that's been the weird thing too, that we've, we've kind of noticed is, you know, bands that we will be big fans of and be like, Oh, I wish this band had gotten more recognition. We'll talk to somebody on the East coast and they'll, they'll say, what are you talking about? That band's huge. <laughs> And we would always be like, oh, well, over here in California, they, you know, that maybe they didn't make it over here. And I think that kind of the same thing might happen a little bit vice versa, where there's bands that, you know, were, were big, bigger here, but, you know, maybe didn't make it out to the East Coast as much. Absolutely. Like I would say, for instance, the Skeletones, I'm sure you guys know who the Skeletones mm -hmm. are. Yep. Um, yeah. Huge in California, probably could have been even bigger. Um, maybe made it out to New York once. I saw them. That's how I know about them. But I, you're absolutely right. I think there was uh, just because it wasn't easy at that point to get in a van and drive across the country. Although Let's Go Bowling, God bless them, did that. Um, and that's, you know, one of the funnest chapters I wrote about was just these high school kids from Fresno just deciding, what the hell? We're going on a tour. <laughs> we're going to get in a van and we're going to go to New York. None of them had ever been there. They, one of them said it was like country mouse, city mouse experience, um, you know, bringing their farmer ska to the big city. But, um, you know, it took pioneers like that, I think, to really spread 
the love. But but uh, I agree with you, Adam. I think I think there was uh, lots of instances where bands we loved here in New York, you guys would never have heard of, and vice versa. And New York is just a trip in and of itself. The first time anybody who's an outsider comes there. Because, you know, we have big cities, other places. San Francisco is a big city. L.A. is a big city. You come to New York and it's a whole different thing. The first time I came to New York, I was just (laughs) so lost. Just had no idea what I was dealing with. (laughs) (laughs) I can understand that. I mean, I I grew up, you know, very close by. So my relationship to it is is different. But I I can imagine the first time you come to New York, it's overwhelming. I mean, uh you don't know where to go. Everybody's moving fast. The traffic is insane. You know, the cabs are driving 100 miles an hour. Um, and you're just like, you got whiplash. So I can imagine. And it did, was the first time you came, was it to play music? Yeah. So the first time I came, we were playing at Coney Island High. Wow. I woke up in the van and I, you know, I had driven all night. And so I had slept in the van. I, I woke up. I was sweaty, disgusting. Somebody was running a jackhammer outside of the van. <laughs> and I, I got out, had no idea where I was. A couple of the other guys wandered over, walked me several blocks, you know, through like the muggy heat uh, to the venue. And then I remember just getting to, we were playing upstairs at Coney Island High. Uh, it was loud inside and hot. And the weirdest thing that I remember is, so I just tried to go stand out on the sidewalk before the show and just try to catch my breath. And the, the, I just remember the bouncer saying, you can't stand here. And I was like, what do you mean you can't stand here? It's like, if you're going to be on the sidewalk, you have to be walking one way or the other. You can't just stand in front of the venue. Yeah, welcome to New York. <laughs> and yeah, that was my welcome to New York. It was crazy. Yep, yep. Uh, very, and, and in the 80s, it was even more intense because it was anything goes. Before... Um, the, the disgraced Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of New York. New York was like an uh, artist's paradise. It was cheap. It was dangerous. There's no doubt about that. But the music scene was everywhere. You literally couldn't go anywhere in New York below 14th Street without hearing music. And um, uh, the creativity was everywhere. And that's, you know, the beginnings of the New York City ska scene are, you know, Rob Hingley settling uh, in the East Village and meeting some like-minded people and, um, uh, you know, starting a band and kicking that off and more bands and more bands and more bands because it was so fertile. There was just so many places to play music. Um, that's all changed now, of course, but that, that I hope was also, excuse me, something that I wanted to make a part of those chapters on the New York bands is that hopefully New York city is a character, not a character, uh, one of the members you know, is is a presence in in those chapters because uh, the city had a lot to do with the start of the New York City Scotty and just the the uh, the way it was so open and the teenagers basically had the run of the city. You could you know nobody checked ID. You could go to clubs. You could go to bars. Um, you know, it made people grow up fast and have all sorts of issues with drugs and alcohol. But it was um, creative paradise. So for you in New Jersey, I mean, obviously you were going to New York as much as you could, but eventually New Jersey got a decent scene or you were kind of uh, Bigger Thomas, your band was the first band in New Jersey? That's right. Yeah. 
we started the first ska band in New Jersey, totally influenced by all the bands in New York. So we were like the redheaded step kid as far as they were concerned. Um, you know, they really didn't want to give us a time of day uh, uh, because we were from New Jersey. I don't know if this if that happens in California. Do people in L.A. look down on people from Anaheim? I can only speak to like the Bay Area, but I know that people who are in San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley look down on like San Jose. Okay, which so, which is kind yeah. of ridiculous. Okay, so we would be we would be have been the equivalent of the ska band from San Jose, right? Um, <laughs> uh, trying to break into the San Francisco scene. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but but the first show we ever played was opening for the New York Citizens, who um, hazed us. Uh, but then they, I mean, they just, they were an intimidating crew. They, do? they were just, they were from Staten Island and Staten Island is a tough place. Um, you know, all the stereotypes about Staten Island, some of them are true. Um, uh, but they just were, did they give you a hard time or what did they do? Uh, they were just, yeah, they gave us a bit of a hard time. <laughs> they gave us a bit of a, they tried to like scam us. They're like, Hey, uh, let us sell your t-shirts. And we were like, oh, okay. So we gave them our t-shirts and they took a percent. They were like, but if by selling them, we we're going to take a percentage of your sales. And we were dumbasses. We were like, okay. You know, it was shit like that. You know, where they were just like, look at these idiots. They just fell off a, you know, the, the back of a wagon. Um, so stuff like that. You know, kids from New York were just so much more sophisticated and just, you know, streetwise than, than we were. Um, so that was certainly part of it. But um they liked us enough that they passed word on to Rob Hingley. Uh, and, you know, the, the next thing you knew, we were playing shows with the Toasters. And, um, you know, that it, it kind of grew from there. But we definitely had to prove ourselves because we weren't from New York. The ska bands from New York and the hardcore bands from New York, I feel like, have a lot of the same mentality. You're absolutely right. And there's a reason for that. I can actually tell you why. Because... Um, I actually just did a podcast about it last week. There was a very famous but completely overlooked rehearsal space called 171A, which was at 171 Avenue A in the East Village. And it was started by these two guys from North Carolina who came up to New York because they wanted to they had rock and roll dreams, but they were into punk rock. And they basically found this empty glass, uh, I guess, factory, and they turned it into a club. And it's the first place the Bad Brains uh, rehearsed when they came to New York. And they actually lived in that space illegally. Uh, and they recorded their first album. The ROIR sessions were recorded there. But because the Bad Brains were there, the whole hardcore scene coalesced around this club. And then so did the ska scene. Because Rob Hingley's first version of the Toasters featured one of the guys who founded that space, 171A. So there was a complete crossover between hardcore and ska in the early days. And at CBGB's, there were hardcore matinees on a Saturday and a ska matinee on a Sunday, and the crowds would blend. So you would get rude boys and rude girls at some of the hardcore shows, and you would get hardcore kids and skinheads who were into punk at ska shows. So I don't know if that, that's my historical understanding of maybe why uh, what you said might make sense. Yeah, that's that's great. And that kind of even goes back to what I mean, what Aaron was trying to get at about like how, you know, hardcore gets, you know, all these books written about it and, you know, documentaries about about it. But ska was happening right alongside it, like the next day 
with the same audience and there's just now starting to be like books written about it. Yeah. I, I, I guess because it's interesting. Uh, 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 when I, I interviewed people like Jeff Baker, you know, King Django, um, he was in the boilers and he explained to me that um, when ska shows were going on at CBGBs, they did not allow big frat boy sized skinheads to, to uh, mosh because there were girls there. Yeah. And he told me a couple times where these guys would just start to get rough in the pit and knock girls over and they would stop the show and they would say, we don't do that here. It's a ska show. We like each other here. We take care of each other here. Do not do that here. So I, you know, I think that might have something to do with it is that yeah. the ska scene was seen as being like, I'm not going to say like, you know, you know, too easy, but like, you know, tough, tough, hardcore guys were like, fuck this. Right. You know, we want to come in here and, and get in a fight with somebody. And that wasn't going on uh, at ska shows in New York. I mean, there might be fights because somebody tried to steal somebody's girl or something like that, <laughs> right. but there was not like senseless violence where skinheads were, were coming in just to beat the shit out of people. It's weird how like that stuff gets so romanticized. Like you listen to all this, the stories of hardcore, you listen to the stories of thrash metal just being violent. This gets told with um, nostalgia and like, you know, the good old days. But yeah, you have like ska shows in the 80s where it's like there's more diversity there's you know different kinds of people there's more of a positive attitude and for some reason this isn't a story worth telling like there's something unremarkable about the the positive elements like we like to talk about the negative elements the violence and all this other stuff and i think also just it looks more exciting to see a mosh pit <laughs> in a video right <laughs> a absolutely there's a um a famous uh picture from city gardens called the wall of death and um uh, there's this photographer, uh, Ken Salerno, who took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures at City Gardens. He was like the uh, house photographer at City Gardens. And City Gardens was was known primarily for hardcore and punk shows. Uh, the booking guy there, Randy, now loved ska. And that's why ska shows went on there as well. But, but I would say uh, it was a hardcore club. And you would see all these skinheads and, and like hardcore punk rockers would link arms at the back of the club and they would start to make this like rumbling sound. And then they would just run towards the front of the club. We're talking like 50 or 60 guys and God help you. If you got in the way as they were coming, the wall of death, <laughs> they would just knock your ass over. It's this amazing picture, but the violence and mayhem <laughs> that it is documenting is ridiculous. The city gardens was that, the main spot you would play locally when you guys did play locally? Yeah. Uh, Randy now loved us. I mean, he just, we were so lucky. He took such good care of us. And um, we tied the Ramones. We were playing the most times in one year at City Gardens. We played there seven times in one year um, because he knew that if he called us up on short notice, we would come and play. Like I'm, there were at least two occasions where our band canceled and he called me, you know, at six o'clock and said, can you be here by eight o'clock to open for whoever? We'd say, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the beauty and innocence of youth, right? We didn't have anything to do, but get in a car and drive down to city gardens and play. So yeah, that was our go-to spot for a long time. Was this the same period where John Stewart worked there? 
briefly towards the end, yes, when we first started playing there, he was still there, but um, working very hard to get into comedy. Did you ever see him skank? <laughs> I did not. Uh, he had a reputation for being like a, a wise ass behind the bar. And City Gardens had, uh, it was an all ages club. So there were very distinct areas of the club. There was a back bar where you had to show ID. That's where he worked. And then there was a front bar where they only served water and Jolt Cola. Do you guys remember Jolt Cola? Oh, yeah. Yep. Those are your two choices. <laughs> so um, if, if you were over 21, you could go get insulted by Jon Stewart in the back bar. Did you ever get insulted by him? No, I didn't. It's funny. He, uh, he interviewed uh, my publishers, uh, Amy and Steve, when the City Gardens book came out. Uh, and he tells this really uh, harrowing but funny story about how when he worked there, he to get the, the club was in a very bad neighborhood. And um, after midnight, you sort of potentially taken your life in your hands when you went out to the parking lot to get in your car. Cars were often stolen or broken into during shows. Uh, and there were gangs around there. So he talks about how um, he would sometimes wait. There would be a tr Trenton cops would come by and he would they would walk him to his car so he could safely get home. <laughs> so it was interesting to me. Reading your book is interesting because like probably like half the bands in your book I interviewed and I know ex their stories extremely well. Uh, and then the other half, I know the stories just a little bit. Not, you know, so like the Hoovers, that's a chapter. I didn't really know much about the Hoovers story. The Hoovers were a ska band and then they kind of took a break and then they ended up with working with Cindy Lauper. The Hooters, yes, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. The Hooters. Why was um, the Hoovers no, are they're, a San Francisco band? They're yeah. A great, a great San Francisco two tone band. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Hooters. The Hooters. Are, yes, yes. Very interesting. Talk about that because I found that to be one of the most fascinating parts of the book. That Cindy Lauper basically was her first album, her famous album, was essentially backed by a ska band. Yes, that's right. That's true. Um, so the Hooters were um, these rock and roll guys. Uh, they met in Philadelphia. They had been in two bands previously. Like one was like a progressive rock band, and one was like a rock band. And they were signed to major labels, but nothing really happened for them. And uh, one night they went to see Madness at a small club in Philadelphia and they had a lightning bolt moment. They were blown away by madness and they came out of the club that night. Um, this is Rob Hyman and Eric Bazillion. So the two main guys from the Hooters and they're like, we got to do this. Now what's fascinating about Rob Hyman is that he had been taken to Jamaica as a teenager. His family used to go to Jamaica on vacation, like in the mid sixties. So he was exposed to, ska and rock steady in real time like in 66 67 68 and fell in love with it fell in love with jamaica wow yeah and, and used to go there uh, on trips by himself when he got into college so this is a guy who was passionate about reggae music so he basically talked eric bazillion into we should do a ska and reggae band this is what's happening in england right now there's not a band like that here in Philadelphia. Let's do it. And so they did. And they were wildly successful. I don't know if either of you have ever been to Philadelphia, but Philadelphia is a very blue collar rock and roll kind of town. And um, they succeeded in turning 
blue collar rock and roll fans into ska fans. Like they would play these amazing shows. There's a, there's a video on YouTube I would recommend who anybody who's listening to this go and check out. It's the Hooters playing in 1980 and the set is extraordinary. And the crowd is this blue collar working class crowd who are going ape shit for reggae and ska music. Um, so they were very successful with that sound for a couple years and they uh, recorded, uh, an independent album that was very successful in Philadelphia. Uh, and then they burned out and they decided to take a break. And it turns out that their friend from college was a producer, A&R guy, and he had just signed Cindy Lauper. And he brought Cindy to see them right before they stopped playing. And she loved them. And they made a deal when the band took a break that Eric and Rob would help her write and record the album. So a lot of the original versions of the songs for that She's So Unusual album had a ska and reggae feel to them that you can actually find online. The demo version of uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, there's a, like a, a ska version of it. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, but what happened was that the label was like, these need to be a little bit more um, pop. Um, because like, uh, her, her biggest hit time after time that she wrote was written with Rob Hyman. And when I talked to him, he told me how it was originally a reggae song, um, completely a reggae song. And, you know, they had to keep refining it and refining it and refining it. But yes, it's true that the roots of Cindy's first album were based sort of in ska and reggae. <clears throat> she was a huge fan of Dexie's Midnight Runners. She wanted originally, um, uh, girls just want to have fun to sound like that. So they tried that. They tried lots of different things, but ska and reggae were definitely sounds that were experimented with in the early recording process. When uh, Cindy Lauper was signed, who was she before she was signed? Was she wasn't very known? Was she? She was in a band called Blue Angel, who were um, they had potentially had their moment. They were they just didn't break out, and then the band broke up, and she was on her own. Um, and I guess she got sort of a development deal with i forget which label it was you've become friends with her right i mean unrelated to this stuff you've become friends with her professionally yeah um some of the work i do is uh on the pr and advertising side and i work uh for an agency that she is a spokesperson for a brand that that agency has so um i've gotten to know her over the last couple of years while she's sort of been the celebrity spokesperson before you interviewed her for the book did you bring up, bring up ska or did you already know her history with ska and stuff? I learned more, um, because, uh, I got to know her manager. And when I told her manager, uh, that I was writing this book, uh, and that I wanted to talk to the Hooters, she's like, Oh, I'll give you Rob Hyman's phone number. Like Cindy talks to him all the time. They're still very close. So Cindy indirectly was the connection for me to the Hooters. Um, <laughs> But but uh, wow. I did I, I did have some conversations with Cindy. Cindy loves reggae music. She's um, done like probably fifteen or twenty years ago during her live shows. She would do a reggae version of "Girls Just Want to Have Fun," and she always felt like her voice. She told me her voice is unusual and very high. And she said she used to think that she sounded like Ika Mouse, who's like a reggae MC, like in the Yellow Man era. So I was I thought that was hilarious that. It's like Cindy Lauper knows who Eka Mouse is. She knew who Eka Mouse was, yeah. And then the Hooters 
they did actually become a pretty big band in the rock and roll world in the, in, after this period, right? They did, yeah. They were um, picked to open the Philadelphia version of Live Aid in 1985. They had just been signed to Columbia Records, and uh, they used that sort of as a launching pad. And um, by that point, they had um, sort of erased a lot of their ska and reggae sounds because, you know, I think this was their big opportunity and the label saw them as a, you know, pop rock band. And they had um, sort of a semi-hit um, with, uh, and they danced, which, you know, is, is a rock and roll song. And then they had a song, their most popular song when they were a ska and reggae band was All You Zombies, which was a straight up reggae song. And they re-recorded that as more of like a rock song with little touches of reggae. I'm not sure what the status of this is. I know you, so Sal Policetti, is that, is that how, did I pronounce, pronounce his name correctly? Yes. Okay. He is the bass player and singer of the song, Jesus Was a Friend of Mine, uh, a viral internet hit that everyone has seen at this point. You re-recorded the song with them? Yes. <laughs> is this something that you're okay talking with or no? I am. I'm perfectly fine talking about it. You can ask me any, anything about it. This is for Rude Boy George? Yes. So we uh, have gone over to England twice to play the Specialized Festival, which is this great um, festival put on by this lovely guy, Paul Williams. Uh, oh, yes. I know Paul. He's a great guy. Wonderful guy. Um, and uh, they raise a lot of money for the Teenage Cancer Trust which is a great organization over in England for, for kids with cancer. Um, so we went over and he's right before we were getting ready to come over. It was in November of 2018. He said, Sal is coming also and needs a band to back him. I'm promoting the fact that the Jesus is a friend of mine guy is going to be here, but we don't have a backing band. Would you guys be willing to back him up? I said, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> course. So Sal lives in upstate, not too far from New Jersey, about two hours from where I am. So he came down to a rehearsal and um, I did not play the bass. I, I, you know, gave the bass playing over to Sal because he sings and plays the bass. And um, we spent about an hour or two going over the song and learning it. It's, it's a quirky song, but I think, you know, if you like it, you like it. I love it. Oh, it's great. Uh, I think it's polarizing. Some people hate it, but I think, I think it's a, it's a gem. Um, totally inspired by the selector, which is also, you know, fascinating. Uh, and also Sal told us he wrote the song like in five minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's like one of two songs he's ever written in his whole life, too. Exactly. And the only ska song that his band played. Um, and they didn't like it, his bandmates in Sunseed. They hated it. I think, he, you know, the fact that they played it on that television show, you know, that Live at Five show or whatever it was, on WNBC, like in 1982 or 83, whenever it was, um, was quite by accident. Audiences loved it, which kind of like sort of forced the band to go along with it. And so one of the producers loved it and kind of insisted that they play it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and this producer also picked the weird outfits, too. Yes, the, the, the powder blue tuxes. That's not how the band looked normally. <laughs> no, they were actually much cooler dressed than that. But yes, it's a, yeah. so they're forever... Um, marked in time by, by a, a song and a look that, that, that wasn't theirs. But so we got to know Sal, who's a, who's a fantastic guy, like a, a rock and roll encyclopedia, really interesting life. We got to talking to him and he said, you know, I'd really like to record the song again because there's not an actual 
version of it other than on the Sonseed album, which is in, out of print. Uh, he said, would you guys back me up on it? And we were like, oh, are you crazy? Yeah, of course, we'd be honored. So uh, right before the pandemic, we went into the studio and recorded um, Jesus is a Friend of Mine. Uh, and I guess I can sort of say this. I don't think they'll get mad at me. But initially, we were trying to talk Mephiscopheles into doing a split single with us. <laughs> where amazing. We would have the, um, the, you know, the Jesus side and then we'd have the devil side. Um, they thought about it and unfortunately took a pass. I thought it would have been amazing, but so we have the song. It's, it's, it's mixed. It's mastered. Um, we just have to decide what to do with it. I mean, that's really up to Sal. He can do it. You know, he, he, you know, hopefully we're going to put it out, but, but whatever he wants to do with it, we're hundred percent behind him. And we're doing our first live show in August. Uh, we're playing with the Pilfers and Catbite at a big outdoor uh, show in, in the Pennsylvania. And we're bringing Sal with us. So it'll be an opportunity for, for all of us to sort of play again, which would be fun. I mean, I'm sure this is probably why you, you guys had the idea. But yeah, there's a remix on YouTube of that Satan is a friend of mine that somebody just did a remix. And uh, <laughs> that could have been the version that Mephiscopheles did. Well, I mean, I think I, you know, purely from a pop culture perspective, I think it would have been brilliant. Um, but yeah. I'll have to go check that out. I have not seen the Satan is a friend of mine, although um, Mephiscopheles sells Satan is a friend of mine T-shirts now. Mephiscopheles, if you're listening, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you must record this. Make it happen. <laughs> Sorry, guys. A little quick thing that like I just breezed by in the book. Al Jorgensen booked Heavy Manners first show. <laughs> Yes. Heavy Manners was like the the very first Chicago ska band. And then Al Jorgensen is known for his band ministry. So what what else do you know about that? That that just was like a real quick little thing. I was like, what? Al Jorgensen? Yeah. Uh, he had, um, uh, I don't know what his band was in like the band he was playing in in 1980 or 1981. But I think it was more like poppy or, or like new wavy. And because Heavy Manners were the only ska band in Chicago, they played with lots of different bands. And so, um, and they had a like a legendary live show. They were an amazing live band. So I think like many other people in Chicago, he was like impressed with them. And uh, yeah, why don't you open it up for my band? I think that's what it was. I can't remember exactly the details, but it was something along those lines. There's the, the, the thing that's about the book that I find fascinating is I would interview these people and little stories like that would pop up. Like there's a chapter on this band called the Shakers and they were signed by David Geffen to Electra Asylum. And so they're recording their album in this big fancy major label studio and in walks Joni Mitchell. She was there. <laughs> she was there to see, I think the Eagles were in a studio next door and she pops in and she's standing next to the Shakers manager with this really confused look on her face. And she looks at him and she says, what is this? And he, <laughs> he said, this is reggae. But then he told me, he realized when she said that, that they were in trouble. If, if, if people didn't know what they were actually playing, that no one was going to get it. And that unfortunately was true of their album that was released in 1976 called Yankee Reggae, which stiffed um, uh, when it was released. But, you know, and, and that Tom Waits, was also came into the studio 
once, but, but knew what reggae was. So like little things like that, just, you know, uh, little snippets where, where the yeah. big rock stars suddenly show up in my book for like a second, you know, that kind of stuff is pretty hilarious. And Tom Waits shows up again in the uh, untouchables chapter. Uh, like he's, randomly drunkenly shows up at the on club with Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Um, it was Joni Mitchell. <laughs> and, 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 um, the on club was a, was a really ratty shitty little club in the silver Lake section of LA. And, um, he wanted to go in and she didn't want to go in and they had a fight. This is according to Howard Parr they had a fight out on the street. And next thing you know, he comes in without her, she leaves. And, um, at the end of the night, they're cleaning up the club, which was a really small hole in the wall, and they only served beer. And Howard would say there'd be literally like five or 600 beer bottles left everywhere. So they would take them an hour to clean the club. And they're finally cleaning it out. And in the corner, they see what appears to be an unconscious homeless man. And the bouncer's like, don't worry, Howard, I'll throw his ass out on the street. And Howard looks over and he goes, no, 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 don't do that. That's Tom Waits. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we'll leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.